everyone. It's great to see uh, so many of you here. I work with events, and we're always trying to figure out how do you get people to stay to the last panel. So HIA has figured that out. Thanks, HIA. So we're going to get started, and we're going to start off with an action project video. Um, and this will be by Christina Wallace. Illegal, alien, terrorist, integrate, go back home. These xenophobic taunts and sentiments are familiar to the children of immigrants featured in the Transmedia Project with Wings and Roots. Set in New York and Berlin, two emblematic global migration cities, the project tells the stories of young adults pushing for more inclusive societies through their activism, art, and daily lives. The project crosses multiple platforms, short and long-form documentary film, interactive web formats, and workshops, and aspires to reframe migration from being a national problem to a global reality by positioning young people as vital social players. Using films, workshops, and web-based tools, the project aims to facilitate conversations with young people in European and North American urban centers about the intersection of migration, racism, and notions of belonging. To date, the project has released two award-winning short films. While the feature-length film and website are currently in production, the short films have screened at nearly 100 events in Europe and North America, often in conjunction with workshops and trainings. The project was initiated and is directed and produced by HIA senior fellow Christina Antonakis-Wallace, the work began during her undergraduate studies at the New School, was expanded during her HIA fellowship in Berlin, and over the last years has grown tremendously to become a multi-platform collaborative project. There is currently an engaged team of over 20 regular contributors in both the USA and Germany, as well as numerous volunteers, including a number of HIA senior fellows. Through the collaborative process of making film, Wings and Roots is merging visual storytelling with building a community that is eager to reimagine belonging together. You can join their conversation via social media, by joining a workshop, getting involved with hosting a screening, or by becoming a volunteer. All right. Um, one more thing before we kick off the panel. Um, David Vine, who's in the back, he's actually going to be passing around a sign-up sheet if folks want to get involved with his work. Do we want to let him say something quickly about his work? Okay. All right. So we're going to kick off the last panel. Um, my name is Danielle Gunin. For those of you who don't know me, I participated in HIA back in 2009 here in New York. Um, I am from Brooklyn. I work um, at the Clinton Global Initiative where I manage the domestic portfolio on skills development and job training. So I run everything domestically that has to do with workforce development. Um, and I am so excited to be here today with our incredible panel. Um, I'm just going to run really quickly through the goals for today's panel. First and foremost, we want to give you a snapshot of what our amazing HIA senior fellows have been doing um, over the past few years and since they've participated in HIA. Um, we want you to also understand how the HIA network 
has been and can be leveraged for your professional development, which I think is a really important part about be, of being a, a senior fellow um, and something that you should definitely be taking advantage of. And then, of course, we want to inspire you all to continue to grow in your professional lives and think about how HIA can play a role in that, whether it's the organization itself, the network, and or the mission. Um, so we're going to kick off with the panelists. Now I'm going to introduce them all. Um, the f our first panelist is Joseph Kaifala. He participated in HIA in Denmark in 2007. And he's currently a 2013 American Society of International Law Helton Fellow, where he's running the Sierra Leone Memory Project. We're also joined by Matt Bowlby, um, who participated in HIA in 2006. And he's working for the International Organization for Migration in Haiti. Catherine Zinell participated in HIA in Denmark in 2009, and she is the district director for New York City Council member Brad Lander. Matt Haney participated in HIA in 2004 in Amsterdam, and he is uh, a school board member for the San Francisco Unified School District. He's also a lecturer at Stanford Design School. And last but not least, Brian Stout, who was an HIA fellow in Copenhagen in 2004 and is currently a senior po policy analyst at USAID. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to our panelists to provide us um, with some background on what it is that they're currently doing. So Joseph, we'll kick it off with you. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, of course, I get to be at the beginning of the line, which is my nightmare in life. <laughs> uh, but um, it's, of course, I'm among friends here, so uh, I'm pretty much confident about this one. Uh, it's, um, I have lived a sort of life that is uh, combining academics with uh, real action work on the ground because I'm one of those restless people who on the one hand is uh, in love with academics, but also um, hold myself accountable to the idea that my academic is all irrelevant if it is meaningless to the life of others. Uh, so I try to take what I learn and help those I can help. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, as you all know, I in school I continue to run the the Genember Project, which is mostly concentrated on providing education opportunities for uh, the children of Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone, as many of you know, uh, is still recovering from a decade of civil war. Um, and, and one of the most affected areas was uh, education and institutions. Uh, but at the end of that, most recently, I went to law school and um, just to be able to do uh, some, some of the things that international law allow, um, um, allows me to do with especially the new project which uh, we just introduced, which is the Sierra Leone Memory Project, and which is the segment of the, the Genova Project that I'm most interested in talking about here today. Um, the Memory Project idea came to my mind after participating in, um, in, in HI in 2007. I, I studied international relations, and I had been listening to uh, folks like Ahmadinejad vigorously deny the Holocaust. Um, and we just, this is 
you know, we're not too far away from 1945, and there are people out there who have made it a day job to deny the Holocaust. And, uh, and then I visited the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and had humans, uh, people whose life were affected by the Holocaust, uh, sharing these stories, and you see the human face. For me, in spite of all the books I had read, that human face um, put me up against people like Ahmadinejad. Um, so then I, I went back to my own country, which, I mean, if many of you know, was one of the most brutal civil wars of uh, contemporary history. Um, and a decade later, many of the young generations do not understand what went wrong in the country and how we got to the point where we were using children as soldiers and deliberately cutting people's hands off just because they participated in a democratic process. Uh, so for me, there was a need to make society understand the consequences of our past. Uh, and the idea is that by confronting um, uh, our past history, we will be able to escape from its conditioning. And, uh, and so that we're not doomed to repeating some of the wrong activities that led us to such brutality and violence. So then we started the memory project. But of course, as you all realize, good ideas must also depend on funding. Uh, and, uh, and this is something we will talk about a lot. I looked everywhere. It's kind of hard to convince people that you want to start a whole oral history project in an country, obscure country like Sierra Leone. So, uh, except, of course, humanity in action. So, um, <laughs> we, because they understand the importance of what we were dealing with. So, we got um, uh, a, a Dutch uh, grant that allowed us to initiate this project, which is now going on. So, I'll stop there for now and let others speak, too. Thank you. Okay. Um, my name is Matt Bowlby, uh, again, and I'm currently working for the International Organization for Migration in Haiti. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, IOM, uh, it's an international organization just like the UN with member states. Uh, it was established in 1951, I believe, and the purpose of the organization was to basically to relocate and deal with refugees coming out of the Second World War. Uh, so it was established about the same time as UNHCR was in a lot of ways works in parallel to what UNHCR is doing. Um, they work a lot in resettlement of refugees in the United States. They're very active here. Um, in, in the Haitian context, uh, they were deployed there after the, um, after the earthquake, which you're probably all familiar with. Myself, uh, before going to IOM, I've, I've been there now about nine months, and most of the work that I've been doing since HIA, since university, has been in the field with international humanitarian and UN agencies. Um, I've worked for so many of them now, I can't, I can't even count them. But uh, so it, a different, um, really different breadth of experience between sort of the more political, um, political analysis of a peacekeeping mission uh, to the International Criminal Court, working with victims on the ground um, in Darfur and in Uganda, and uh, now in a more tangible sort of um, delivering service delivery, actually delivering um, humanitarian aid directly into the hands of people. Um, so all of these experiences have, have been in the field. We, if we call it the field. Uh, I mean, 
sometimes in very remote villages, other times in a capital city like Port-au-Prince. But uh, we often we, we create this uh, this idea of the uh, HQ, the New York, or the um, the larger, the, sort of the first world, perhaps. And then you have the field, which is anything outside of that, which is kind of amusing maybe to a Haitian who lives in in what is for them, you know, their largest and most prosperous city. But uh, it's um, so I came to Haiti uh, having left the situation in Syria, um, very uh, difficult situation. Uh, one, I myself had lived in Syria when it was a peaceful place uh, in 2005, uh, and that's I did my. HI interview, in fact, uh, on a horrible Skype connection in a Damascus internet cafe where I'm sure the Mukhabarat intelligence agency was listening to Judy ask uh, her questions. <laughs> she may be on a list somewhere. Um, but uh, that was a peaceful Syria. It was a very different Syria than it is today. Um, and um, when I initially, it was, in fact, these experiences. Uh, that and HIA, which drove me to to stay in that region. So I was a university student. Um, I had gone to the Middle East because September 11th happened uh, during my first week of university. So you go, you know, you're embarking on this new intellectual experience, and uh, September 11th hits. Um, and HIA sort of helped me to put that in perspective and to launch. Um, the work that I'm doing now. So the, this created for this sort of burning need to, to be in the field, to be close to the people, um, to know them very closely and directly. So I feel like through the field work, uh, being in these remote areas and difficult conditions, but still being very close to the people has been what's driven me. And HIA, I think, it sparked that. Um, the work that we do, however, it's it's complex because this international... Um, and maybe some of us that don't know the UN, uh, you have this mythical, perhaps, understanding or this idea of this grand institution doing these grand things, all which are very unclear to you. Or, but in fact, when you go inside, it's it's like no other organization, just as dysfunctional and 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 also positive, doing positive, wonderful things. But so, what's frustrating in the field, and has been frustrating for me, um, is you're you're in this place. You, you have a lot of these resources, and you're able to, you, you hope you're able to, to make an impact. And um, I think sometimes the more tangible aid project, the thing I'm doing now, um, is much more satisfying than a lot of the other jobs where we're um, analyzing a political situation or trying to contribute to now the GA next week, for example. Can, contributing an analytical report. So I've really appreciated being in the field. Right now we're relocating uh, the displaced from the earthquake. Um, still three years on, you have um, uh, hundreds, uh, 200,000 displaced persons living in what you would imagine to be sort of your quintessential displaced persons camp, a tent city uh, in the middle of Port-au-Prince. Um, so we are actually going into this. I, I work in the camp. I set up a a plastic table and chairs, uh, sit in the middle of the camp, and begin to register the population. When we registered them, then we um, we te we tell them to go and find apartments or housing, which is meets minimum standards and adequate conditions, and then we pay that rent for one year. 
for them to leave the camp to live in a more suitable accommodation for one year, as well as um, some minor financial help to start a small business or to start something to get them on their feet. Um, very good and positive project. In, so, in a lot of ways, though, it's also like a, like a machine, right? You're going into one camp, and you're just churning out um, next, next, next. Five, you know, in three months, I have to move these 5,000 people out, and then you go to another camp, and you... And you do the same. So it's very, very interesting. Um, but it's the solution that the international community has decided is the most, um, the one that makes the most sense right now. Um, the money has dried up. The, um, the international interest has dried up moving to Syria, moving to other places. And we just need to get them out and close these camps. Um, one thing that I think is interesting in this context is you may think um, that you may hope that you're aid is always going to someone who needs it. A lot of times, we talked today in some of the groups about this culture of dependency or creating, sometimes maybe doing more harm than good. Um, and many of the people that we work with um, are in these camps, not because they have to be, but because they're waiting for me to show up, for an international aid worker to show up and, and hand them something. Um, so they may have a house just down the block. As soon as we show up, they, I've literally seen people... Um, grabbing a, a, a tent from outside their house, running with it over their heads, and then s setting it down in front of me before I arrive so that I count that tent as part of that, of that city. But uh, anyway, I guess I'm just trying to give you a little bit of color for sort of the interesting things that go on in the field, maybe try to visualize um, what's going on on the ground in these places. Um, but it's tremendously fulfilling work, and... Uh, I, I was telling Judy, you know, I always, when I get a little discouraged or a little um, feeling like I'm maybe not having an impact, I always sort of find myself coming back to HIA like moments like this, and I um, find my inspiration. And uh, so, in fact, I mean, last night I was feeling the same way I came in from Port-au-Prince. I was very sort of demotivated and upset, and, you know, I don't know if I'm really doing much positive work. And then you walk outside and you meet a few HIA fe fellows and you have some conversations. And then, you know, last night I'm sitting at uh, 3 in the morning speaking to a Syrian man named Ibrahim who uh, said he met some kid who wants to do a human rights fellowship and she wants to do a, a project about Syria. So uh, uh, me and Ibrahim are going to hang out tonight at uh, 7 o'clock. If anybody wants to join us, for, uh, <laughs> so you meet, you you get inspired and sparked by just putting, surrounding yourself with these individuals, and then you run into a Syrian man who's from just 20 miles from where the chemical attack, uh, the chemical weapons attack took place, just hanging out in a in a deli down the block. So, but if you don't, uh, it's I found that putting myself, surrounding myself with people like you, I I find these situ these situations create themselves, and so. Um, I'm feeling refreshed and inspired. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Catherine Zanell, um, and we're going to shift locations and sectors pretty dramatically. Um, <laughs> forewarning. Um, I work at the New York City Council here in New York City um, for a council member in Brooklyn. His name's Brad Lander. Um, and perhaps I'm one of those crazy folks who are working in government and trying to improve institutions that are in many ways failing people. 
Um, uh, but I think my my position um, in the office has enabled me to do um, the sort of community organizing um, that I saw as an HA fellow in Denmark, um, and about which I really enjoy speaking with a lot of my fellow fellows. Um, so to give you a little bit of background, um, my boss, Brad Lander, is one of 51 city council people um, in New York, and he's the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. Um, there are 11 city council people in that caucus, and their um, overarching goal is to create a more just and equal New York City. So some of the policies that they've worked real hard on um, this past term include prevailing wage legislation um, and paid sick days. Um, and I'll be honest, the relative power of the New York City Council to affect some of the social justice and human rights issues um, that we discuss um, is limited. And uh, for that reason, many council members kind of focus on constituent service, constituents being people who live in, a, in their district. Um, and I think the, the council also adds value in checking the mayoral administration um, so some ways that that's been done recently include calling out Mayor Bloomberg for wanting to fingerprint food stamp applicants um, and also passing legislation to, um, to curb stop and frisk. Um, but beyond that, kind of back in the district, um, city council people, I think, can do uh, a lot to make sure democracy is working better for people in their neighborhood um, and to identify where government's just not working and try to make it better. Um, so, so myself and my coworkers kind of see ourselves as problem solvers and navigators. Um, and I'll give you a sense of some of the things that we work on. Um, I think our overarching goal is to um, strengthen civic infrastructure to make better decisions about our physical infrastructure, uh, premise on the idea that by broadening decision-making and having more participation, you're making smarter choices. Um, so one good example um, on a small scale is something called participatory budgeting. Uh, every city council person gets a pool of discretionary funds, which can be used to fund a nonprofit that one of your best friends works at. Um, or <laughs> in... <laughs> happens. Um, or in nine city council districts um, here, uh, some of that money is being set aside for projects that neighbors develop and vote on. So this is our third year going in. Um, citywide, I think 15,000 people have come out to vote on $12 million worth of projects, some of which have been implemented and are underway. Um, and I think that's one way that you know, people can really engage and do organizing and address some of the issues that they observe on a daily basis. Um, another example, I think, of where we add value and then try to take it up a notch um, was in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. Um, within our district, um, there was uh, there's a shelter, uh, evacuation shelter at the Park Slope Armory, and there were 500 um, frail elderly people who were living um, at uh, assisted care facilities in the Rockaways who were displaced um, and who were given uh, military rations to eat. And these are people with diabetes for whom that would be like a huge health problem. 
Um, so really trying to uh, leverage relationships, existing civic relationships, um, to make sure that services are being provided to this vulnerable population in a time of need. Um, so there is actually a soup kitchen, a kosher soup kitchen in Borough Park, um, with whom we have a good relationship that then provided um, meals to folks in the parks of Armory, so trying to make those connections. And then kind of taking, taking that up a notch, um, now one of my projects is um, uh, structuring a community planning process for um, an area that was flooded severely during the hurricane um, on the banks of the Gowanus Canal, which for those who live in Brooklyn is incredibly stinky and very mm-hmm. polluted. Um, and right now all the land on either side of the canal is zoned for manufacturing use. Uh, and there's been a lot of pressure to change that. So uh, kind of, again, leveraging what we saw during the hurricane, um, the relationships that were built and the civic infrastructure that's been in place to bring people together and make decisions about um, where our investments go in the next four, eight, 15 years. Um, So, I mean, saying all that, I'll recognize that um, the district that Brad represents um, and where I work uh, in Brooklyn kind of stretches from Cobble Hill through Park Slope down to Kensington, uh, and is predominantly white and affluent. Um, but I think in working with our partners at the council um, and trying to engage folks who wouldn't otherwise participate in government, uh, we are trying to address areas where um, these institutions have been failing and could do better. Um, and I think for me, HIA um, has similarly been an area to to come for inspiration, for ideas, Um for networking um, and to kind of recharge uh, those batteries when the local drama can sometimes um, overshadow the good work that's being done. Um, And really encouraging folks to participate um, and see local government as a way to exercise active citizenship. Um, So I'll leave it there for now. Kathleen. Cool. (laughs) Thank you. Hey everyone, so I'm Matt Haney. Um, I also agree with the other panelists that it's really wonderful and inspiring to be back around HIA. Uh, I was a a fellow in 2004, uh, which I think in HIA terms is a long, long time ago. A couple of us are here and we feel super old. Um, So it's, uh, to to put it in context, this was two years before Twitter was invented. So we we couldn't tweet about our experiences in Amsterdam, which was probably a good thing um, in retrospect, especially being a politician now, that that record would be somewhere. Uh, And there are a limited number of Facebook photos because Facebook had just started at that time. Um, So um, I guess for me, I wanted to share the story uh, of how I got from uh, Amsterdam and and HIA and to where I am now as a member of the school board in San Francisco. Um, I actually believe, and I, and I reflected on this a bit before I came here, that I don't think I would be on the, on the school board uh, if it weren't for HIA. I don't think I would have taken the path uh, that I did uh, and, and, and in the way that I did uh, if it wasn't for HIA. Um, so it was nice to be able to, in preparation for this, reflect on that a little bit. Um, when I went after HIA uh, and my experience there, I became deeply interested in, in international human rights uh, and in transitional justice in particular. So I, I, um, I had the opportunity to do a master's degree in Ireland um, in international human rights. Through HIA, I, I was able to go to Sarajevo uh, and work at the International um, War Crimes uh, Court there, or not the International War Crimes, the Domestic War Crimes Court there that was just starting at the time. 
and I and I really went all in in trying to understand how people um, in situations in which um, everything seemed hopeless, um, everything seemed broken and lost, uh, rebuilt, um, and used institutions to do that. Um, took control of the institutions that they had at their disposal and used them to undo injustice uh, and undo and prevent conflict. Uh, and that was what I was drawn to. I'm not sure why I, I was drawn to that at the time. I think uh, it became my focus and my interest, and I think HIA had a lot to do with that. And then what, I was in Bosnia in 2005, in late, late 2005, uh, and I was working at the Domestic War Crimes Court, and there was a moment that I now realize was, was pivotal for me and, and sort of switched a bit and helped me understand why I was interested in, in these issues and what my responsibility was regarding them. I had a taxi driver in, in Sarajevo who would take me every day from my apartment, which was in downtown Sarajevo. I had really had never lived outside of the country besides HIA, and now I was living in the middle of uh, Sarajevo on my own. I had my own apartment. It was a lot of fun for those of you who've been to Sarajevo. Uh, and uh, I had a taxi driver who would take me every day. And uh, I one one morning he he picked me up, and I got in. And I had come to know a bit about this taxi driver. He had fought in the war. He had lost family members. He he had um, lived through um, a very um, difficult and violent time in in that country. Uh, and he he said to me when I got in the taxi uh, car, he said, "Hey, I I was thinking about you the other day." I was thinking about you last yesterday, actually. And I said, well, you were thinking about me? Okay, why? And he said, well, I, I wanted to say I'm sorry about what's happening in your country. And I, and I thought, well, what do you mean what, what's happening in my country? And he said, you know, I, I've been watching the news, and I've seen what's happening with the hurricane um, and the people who, who are suffering there and who are dying. Um, and I want to say that I'm sorry about that. Um, and so I, I remember at the time thinking, what the hell am I doing out here? <laughs> you know, what, what, why am I here when these things are happening in, in my own community back home? And um, is this the right place for me to be? And I think it was a complicated answer. It wasn't an easy sort of like, you, you know, this is not the right place for me to be. I need to go home and all of that. It was actually, I think, a little bit more complex with that, from that, which it, at that time it was the right place for me to be in Bosnia because I was learning from them about how they dealt with the, these challenges um, in, in conditions that were different in some ways, but also very similar in many ways. Uh, and I was learning from their perspective and from their courage. Uh, and I was thinking about how I could use those lessons and bring them home um, to my own community. And so what I ended up doing was I came back to, to, to the US. I went to law school and education school. I got very involved in the Obama campaign where I thought um, this was an opportunity for me to change um, my own country and its, its politics with mixed results, as we, as we know. Um, and, and then I, I, I came to find education as a place where um, I wanted to spend my time and devote my energy. And reflecting back on what I had learned in Bosnia and Northern Ireland, and I also spent time in South Africa, uh, that those same challenges and questions of transitional justice uh, are not just similar, but in many ways the exact questions that we face in our educational system. Uh, what we face in San Francisco where uh, um, we have a situation where we provide a, a pretty decent, um, even, even pretty good, high-quality high educational experience, and this is true in San Francisco as it is across the country, um, for people who are well-off and people who are white. Um, 
but we don't, um, in any sense of the word, provide a high-quality educational experience for people who are low-income or people of color. And there are very deep reasons for that that go back to our country's history, and it has everything to do um, with questions of transitional justice. Those same questions that Bosnia was grappling with, that, that, that Northern Ireland was grappling with, we're grappling with those sa same questions in this country and in San Francisco Unified School District, where we are trying to overcome and retake these institutions that have, have been accessories um, to deepening uh, racial and economic inequality and injustice that have led to the conditions that we face. And that's what that we, we our school district every day, what we do is transitional justice and 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 having the experience that I had through HIA um, and, and in Bosnia and, and in other places and to reflect back on that and those lessons and the courage that they had um, is, is 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 profound and powerful and I think provides a perspective um, that maybe we don't talk about it in that way, but that's exactly it is what it is that we're doing. And so HIA, n not just because I was able to be there, but also because that's the perspective that's fundamental to HIA's perspective, um, which is that we have a lot to learn from each other, um, which we can apply in, in ways that maybe are unexpected. So um, just to wrap up quickly, because um, uh, I didn't say much about what I'm doing, but uh, um, so I was elected last year um, uh, to the San Francisco Unified School District Board of Education. I'm the only one on there um, without kids. I'm 15 years younger than anyone else. Um, <laughs> I'm often mistaken for a student, um, probably the only one to ever come to a board meeting wearing Air Force Ones, you know, is um, a different sort of board member. Um, and I still, I still see things um, in large part um, from the eyes of a student, what it's like to be in that desk and to have that experience and to either be engaged and want to be there or want to get the hell out of there. Um, and so that's my focus. That's my priority is to create schools that students want to be, where we think about what they're good at and what they like to do and what engages them and we treat every single one of them as, as geniuses in their own way and that we help bring that out um, rather than shut it down. So that's, that's what I'm doing on the school board. Um, uh, I was elected last year, I've only been on for a year and now I also have a new position at the Stanford Design School which is also called the D.School. Um, I'm brand new there, I still don't have any really idea what they do. Um, I'm learning, um, uh, I can't help you pick out a great outfit. Uh, a lot of people have said, oh, you're at the design school. So you do fashion design, you can you know, you make shirts or something. Uh, I wish I knew how to do that. Um, they do design thinking, it's like IDEO for those of you who have heard of that. So my, my role there is to learn design thinking which is a process so far that I think is, is transformational and profound and I, and I re recommend that you look it up and learn about it because that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> um, and I'll let you know when I know, when I know more uh, and, um, and apply it to education and see if we can come up with some new ideas of how to change education um, using that, that, that frame. So um, again, it's wonderful to be here, especially with folks up here and thank you. Uh, so I think I saw Phil hitting his flask back there, so I'll try to keep this brief. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try to make five points in four minutes and then let you all tell us what you think is interesting because there's a lot more talent out there than there is up here. No disrespect to, uh, to our colleagues here. Um, so just very briefly, um, I've always been interested in social justice, right? That was something that I was fascinated by since an early age. And when I came out of HIA, I had, for the first time in my life, a bit more of a nuanced understanding of where I wanted to take that. And it was really international human rights, and more specifically, mass atrocity. So one fateful afternoon, I'm talking with Judy, 
as one is wont to do, and I'm expounding on all my great theories and all the things I could be doing and how I want to change the world. And she listens patiently for a while. And I'm saying, well, Judy, the hard thing is there's, there's so much I could be doing. I could be a journalist. I could be, you know, uh, I could work for the government. And she finally looks at me and says, Brian, don't be sophomoric. Choose something. It's like, okay. Um, so instead of doing that, I went to grad school, put, it, put off uh, choices a bit longer. And while there, I, I focused on human rights law. And I was like, the ICC really has a lot of potential, you know, to the gentleman's comment about Bashir. And then halfway through, I was like, yeah, no one's going to stop genocide with the ICC. It is a necessary but insufficient condition to preventing genocide. You need some other tools in your arsenal. So I shifted to focus on conflict management. Um, coming out of grad school at the height of the recession, um, managed to finagle a job in the government at USAID. And USAID has kind of the best mission statement in history. I mean, check that out. Um, but the problem is, so we actually went through a big exercise to decide what our mission statement ought to be, a new one. I think that's pretty sweet. I'm not sure about the leading the world part. It seems a little presumptuous, maybe. Um, but the rest of it, pretty good, right? The challenge for that is, how do you actually do that? How do you make that real? Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to take a stab. My current role, um, I'm responsible for overseeing the country strategy process for Middle East and Asia. So what that means is all of our country missions, USAID has a presence overseas, is responsible for a five-year strategy where they explain how they're going to spend your taxpayer dollars to do cool things in that country, hopefully in partnership with that country. But I don't want to talk about that right now. I'm talk about something else, um, which is last year I spent six months in Burma. The U.S. government calls it Burma. You might have heard it Myanmar. It's the same thing. We call it Burma because it's a complicated story. We'll talk about it later. Um, to help reestablish the USAID mission there. So we've been gone for about 25 years. There was some violence, uh, dictatorship, a minor coup. Um, the U.S. government generally, unless it's Egypt, doesn't support those. This is off the record, right? Off the record? Okay, great. Um, so I went to Burma, and I want to talk about a few things, but the first lesson here, if I can actually make this thing move, I think, right? Yeah. So I'm not going to go into this, but um, point number one is you don't get what you don't ask for. It's sort of an obvious point, um, but just sort of think on that for a second. That's how, that's how Burma happened, right? So I was a little bit unsatisfied in my job. I was kind of getting the itch a little bit. Uh, Matt was talking about field experience. If you work in Washington for too long, you start to go crazy. It was getting to that point. Um, so I basically had a good conversation with my boss um, and asked to go to Burma, and he let me. Um, so this is really the, the core thing I want to say here. And so you've heard a lot of folks talking today from Sonia this morning to some of the comments earlier about um, how you affect change. And my sort of not-so-profound lesson from, you know, a decade now and a lot of time spent in Washington is that really implementation matters, right? It's not just the idea. The idea is critically important, but that's not quite good enough. So sub-point number one under that is, is politics matters, right? I live and work in Washington, D.C. A lot of people come there gung-ho, fired up, ready to change the world. And the problem is um, it's hard, and there's a lot of people out there and institutions out there that are resistant to change for a lot of very good reasons. Um, so politics matters. In Burma, um, my primary responsibility was getting everything ready to go for a major event. The President of the United States came to visit Burma. It's the first time the President's ever come there. It was a big deal, and we had no idea what we were doing. So. A week before the president's arrival, um, my job is to help set up this inauguration of the mission, the first time the U.S. president will ever inaugurate a new USAID mission. And we had some ideas about we'll get a banner set up, you know, he'll do this little speech. And the problem is at every turn I was getting stymied. The embassy wasn't thrilled about it. Um, we, you know, who are these USAID people? What do they do here? 
And at first I was quite frustrated. Um, why don't they, you know, why can't we just be colleagues and, and make this all work out? Um, and then I realized, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's politics. There are turf battles here. People are protecting their interests and there are reasons that they're doing that. So I had a rethink and a couple of beers. And then I designed a T-shirt um, to commemorate, <laughs> commemorate Obama's visit. So I'm not a graphics design guy. This was like 15 minutes with the Google. Um, but w the whole point of this was, hey, we're team players. We're part of the embassy. It's all one effort here. Um, we want to be supportive, whatever that means. So it's not like USA is trying to steal the thunder of this big moment for the embassy. We're all, we're all hunky-dory. Um, big hit. People love the T-shirts, right? So it was a big sort of event that got people together around the embassy. Um, everyone was pretty psyched about it. And all of a sudden, I started having a lot more success working with my colleagues and getting people to pay attention and think that we were actually team players. Uh, second to last point, context matters, right? So you guys are all really smart people doing really good things. And we've heard from a lot of people today that you can't just go into Haiti and plop down a solution. You have to talk to Haitians about what works in Haiti. So that's not a very deep point, but it's a really hard one for a lot of people to get because it's hard. And it means you have to go to a country and be humble and listen and learn. And for a lot of us who are, you know, hard-charging people who have been used to getting good grades, we think we have answers. And it can be a little frustrating when you, you realize that you don't. So we uh, had a debate with the government of Burma about the president's visit. And the president did not want to go. So the capital of Burma used to be Rangoon. And then five years ago, uh, the government moved the capital to Naypyidaw um, for two reasons. One, the stars were aligned. And two, they thought we were going to bomb them. This, this is actually true. They were very auspicious. So they uh, built a $1 billion capital city in the middle of literally nowhere that has 15-lane uh, roads with nobody on them. So this is one of the highways in Naypyidaw, the capital of Burma. So for obvious reasons, uh, President Obama did not want to go to Naypyidaw. And so he said, well, we'll go to Rangoon instead. How do we solve this? Well, the reason we should go to Rangoon is because Rangoon has Shwedagon Pagoda, the holiest Buddhist site in all of Burma. So it would only be proper to go pay our respects there. We'd love to go to Naypyidaw, but we have to go to Shwedagon. Um, unfortunately, Secret Service decided that it was not safe for the president and others to be um, barefoot on the Shwedagon, which is what you have to do to pay proper respect. And so at the last minute, they nixed it and said, we're not going to Shwedagon. So President Obama, being a decent-hearted citizen, is uh, on the road with the U.S. ambassador to Burma from the meeting with the president that morning to uh, the meeting with Aung San Suu Kyi. And as they're driving along, he sees Shwedagon Pagoda at the window. And this is the story as it was related from the ambassador says, uh, is, that, is that important? You know, kind of, he knew it was important. The ambassador's like, well, yes, sir. And he's like, should I go to it? And the guy says, well, actually, the people would be pretty insulted if you didn't. Uh, meanwhile, this is not in the itinerary, right? This has been planned for like two months. There's guys with, you know, machine guns everywhere. And President Obama turns around to a Secret Service guy and says, make it happen. <laughs> so 20 minutes later, um, President Obama is paying his respects. Well, you can't really see there, but he is actually barefoot. Um, the counter-sniper teams uh, may do. Um, so anyway, just recognizing that the, the context is actually important and meeting people where they are um, will actually get you a lot farther. Very last point, um, a very Washingtonian point. So my big mistake when I came to D.C. was assuming that networking meant talking to people who were doing things that I was interested in. So I'd be like, oh, you're in conflict. Great, let's talk. Oh, you're in health. You know, next. Um, turns out it's a little short-sighted. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and so I've, I've learned that in the last few years. And so when I went to Burma, um, we were supposed to set up this whole, you know, the place where the inauguration is going to take place. 
And at some point in the two months there, I had beers with the maintenance guy, you know, some random dude who does maintenance. And ordinarily, I would be like, oh, you're the maintenance guy. Like, I know how to hit nails, too. We should talk. Um, but we had, we had drinks. We swapped stories. And I was like, you know, this is um, wasn't even like an instrumental sort of thing. It's just basically broadening your network a little bit. You never know when you might need somebody. So it turns out, um, on Sunday afternoon, we had to nail this, this banner up. That's actually Burmese there in the, the room where it was going to be. And so I was like, I don't know anybody who can help me right now. And I was like, wait a minute. So this guy and the local staff were all called out in a moment's notice to help nail it up. So we all got in place to see what this would actually look like. President Obama, it turns out, is pretty tall. He's about 6'3", so that's more or less my height. So that was not going to work out. Um, I was, we had to move it up a little bit. But there it actually works out. Um, so anyway, all that to say, and I think I, I ran a bit too long here, but the point being... Um, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's important to not just be thinking about what is we want to make an impact in and the fact that we want to make an impact, but also being a bit more pragmatic about how we do it and being thoughtful about building some of these networks that everyone's been talking about. And um, yeah, we'll stop there. Thank you all um, for those engaging comments. So we're going to open it up for Q&A in a few minutes, but I'm just going to start the panel off with a few questions. So my first one would be the objective of HIA um, is really to promote dialogue about understanding, but also to help democratic countries or to help um, participants within democratic countries figure out how they could better um, handle some of the challenges that they face when dealing with increased diversity. How do you all see your current jobs connecting to that mission or living out that mission? Anyone in particular? Should we just jump in? Um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, as Matt was saying, well, this Matt, there's two Matts actually, but both Matts were saying, um, I think my entire career trajectory post-HIA uh, has been very much living that model. I mean, my first job in Boston was around civic education, looking at transitional justice issues, um, certainly, and thinking through my career path through grad school, um, very much about that. And I, I like, you know, the very part about, you know, USAID's message is advancing freedom. You know, the gentleman earlier, um, Steve, is that correct, um, was talking about what's your ultimate vision. And that is really a goal statement, right? Like, that's what we want. And for me, it's about opportunity. Um, Sonia's response to my question this morning was about Leadership and passion and motivation comes from two places, a sense of redemptiveness or a sense of overwhelming sort of gratitude. I'm the latter category. I've had a pretty sweet life, um, and I feel like everybody else should too, um, there but for the grace of God kind of thing. And so trying to have, doing what we can to make sure other people have the same types of opportunities that we have been, or at least I have been fortunate to enjoy, is really where it comes from. And I, I think that it's not so important um, where you work, you know, private sector, nonprofit, public, whatever, but that you are working on a problem set, that you are focusing on trying to move the ball forward a little bit. Anyone else? I think uh, to go from that, you know, I, I like that you showed the, the mission statement of USAID and, and speaking here about HIA. These are tall orders, right? These are, are extraordinary mission statements. And I think um, what I'm doing in my current job is also, you know, you're, you're showing up as the physical embodiment of that. When you went to Burma, you, you were that message 
on the ground to the Burmese people. You were the United States for the Burmese people. They all think we're really tall, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing they sent you. And not me. <laughs> but uh, and so when you show up, right? You, this is what they're expecting. When you're in the International Criminal Court, the victims are expecting you to bring justice for these war crimes, right? And it's it's an impossible task to do. Certainly to do it in the way that it's written. And um, when you go to the field in Haiti, it's the same thing, right? But I can't possibly fulfill this to the way that they imagine it. And I think one of the things I have to do on a daily basis, and we probably do in all of our jobs, because of these grand mission statements, is we're we're managing expectations. And so when you show up in the field, uh, when you show up in Haiti, um, the international community has come to save Haiti after this earthquake. We have come to save you. You are the sitting in this camp helpless, and we are here too. Right? And they're expecting that. That's what they think is going to happen because that's what we wrote down in our mission statement. And because they haven't had that kind of – they don't have that hope around them, so they imagine that that hope will come from somewhere else. So when the, when the Haitian is trying to – he's trying to deal with where is he going to get his next meal, literally, right? That's what he's dealing with. He's not thinking about that mission statement, right? He's thinking you're, you're the promised one to bring that. So I think what I try to do or what we are trying to do is to try to take th- those two things, him thinking about what's, what's going to happen today and uh, this grand mission statement and try to bring them somewhere in the middle to manage his expectations, to get him to accept, to expect and, and be happy with, you know, not the ultimate salvation of what he may imagine, but to something which is somewhere in the middle to allow him to to move forward and think about uh, more than just tomorrow's meal, but to get him to understand that it's not going to be, you know, this perfect, amazing future immediately. Matt? Go ahead. I mean, um, in in kind of continuing in the same vein, I think that um, at least within my role, and I imagine, you know, similarly across the board, um, you know, these are large organizations, um, you know, at least from the the last two folks that we'd heard from, um, and and myself, kind of working within New York City government, um, they're behemoths, as I think uh, Sonia had referred to them earlier, and pushing um, not only to achieve that mission, but to achieve it in a better way, um, with um, you know more holistic participation. Um, to me, seems like um, an added layer, which I think. Um, HIA has emphasized um, and is an important consideration, too. Yeah, um, I agree with all those points. Uh, so I went to law school, and I, and I put that in quotes because I think after the first two months, I stopped showing up. And I don't recommend this. this is, I'm not giving that advice. But um, what I realize is that fundamentally, and this is not – obviously, this needs to be disrupted, but the, the model of law was really um, – and as a profession – and as a way of bringing about social change was speaking for other people. You have this set of professions. You have this access that they don't have. So you go in and, and you speak for them. And it's, it's an important thing. It's an essential thing. Uh, but what I realized, and I think it's, again, in part because of the perspective that I really embraced out of HIA and, and, and other um, experiences that I had, is that I didn't want to go in and speak for other people because I had some access that they didn't have. Um, I wanted to make sure that in decisions that impacted people's lives that they could speak for themselves and that I could help empower them to speak for themselves. 
And so, you know, I, after law school, I, I was a student organizer, a community organizer for a number of years. Um, and that model, that framework of community organizing, that, that's what it's about. Um, and in politics, you know, this is, it's a little complicated because politicians often are speaking for other people. But at its core, people, they elect you um, and you, your power comes from, from them directly. And, and, and you only speak um, for a set of other people um, because they put you there and they can take you out. <laughs> um, they have that power. Um, and at its best, it, a, a politician or someone who's in local government, elected official, should have a deep, deep understanding of what people are experiencing and, and, and what the realities are. And if they're not speaking about those things, then they can be removed by the people. And so that's, that's I guess, how I justify speaking on behalf of people as elected official. Uh, and then, you know, and similarly with design thinking. So I think that, that the, the, the challenge of being in systems that often silence voices and want to make decisions for people and presume what their experiences are and not try to have a deep understanding of what they actually are and find ways to empower them to speak for themselves. I think that's the challenge that, that we face in many of the institutions that we're talking about and is a, is, is a fundamental one that if we don't address, we're going to continue ha to have that, that disconnect. Yeah. Um, I, I went to law school and I showed up uh, with a <laughs> with a devotion of a devotion of a Catholic boy on Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, but, uh, because for me, I had chosen to go to law school to study international law because, um, in spite of the, the 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 pessimism that it presents in the current state of things, especially when government fails fail to live up to their obligation of arresting war criminals. Um, uh, but I still do believe that uh, from the very moment that we created the United Nations, uh, there are certain obligations that we can ignore, but it will always be there. And uh, for countries like Sierra Leone, I, I deeply believe that um, they're going to need advocates in the international system that advance their causes. And for me... Um, Combining that with the HI experience, um, Sierra, when the Sierra Leonean Civil War ended, it's one of those civil wars that combine both methods of uh, conflict resolution in international law today. So there was an international war crimes tribunal, the Special Court of Sierra Leone, and the Sierra Leone Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and for me, once those institutions were set up, First of all, they were accepting an obligation uh, both to the victims and the perpetrators. Uh, to the victims by uh, prosecuting those who were gravely responsible for some of the war crimes and to the perpetrators this idea of mending society and facilitating a, a situation in which people take responsibility for some of their actions. Um, my role as an human rights advocate is then after all of that process to then participate in the democratic process by holding the government accountable to the people, uh, by reminding the government that, in fact, they had set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was mandated to come up with recommendations on how to mend society. And by failing to live up to those recommendations, they are, in fact, in violation of not only their national law, because... The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was created by a legislative process in Sierra Leone. So by failing to fulfill those recommendations, they were also in violation of uh, the, their own legislative process and in violation of international law. So by using 
the, one of the reasons we're using oral history is to, in fact, go back to these victims and perpetrators that the government owes an obligation to, to have them tell this story and to bring it back into the face of the government and say, this is what you are living and you're failing to live up to. And, and for me, a clear understanding of international law and international obligation and morals and having a second party that can hold nations responsible because, you know, we all have laws in our democratic processes and everyone would say we are nations of law. But we are also very cognizant of the fact that some of the most appalling atrocities of our existence have been legitimized by law. Uh, we need a second opinion, and that's where international law comes in for me. Great. Thank you. So we have a better understanding of, I think, first and foremost, how your current career trajectories ha are living out um, the HIA mission, but also how the HIA mission has impacted the pathways that you've taken. Can we bring it sort of to the practical level, because we are a room full of young professionals, and you, can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to leverage the HIA network and maybe some best practices that you might have with regards to networking or how to make the most use of all of this, these incredible people in the room? Well, I'll start then. Um, uh, for me, really, most of what I've been able to achieve, and it's, it's been really on the back of my HIA experience. For once, you notice that the memory project and both the memory project and the Geneva project is uh, run by myself and Liat Kraftchik, who is another um, senior fellow. Uh, she's currently in Israel. Uh, and then coming back to uh, HIA fellows most of the time, you know, people say, you do such a great job. And I say, well, I do it uh, by uh, harassing you. I'm sure many of you in this room have received a fundraising email. So having to come back to you guys has, has been some of the... I mean, we can't do what we do without the support that we get from um, our co-senior fellows. And also, the uh, the very first project we did was with the action project just after my uh, uh, Copenhagen experience, which, which also received some funding uh, from um, HIA to build a local library in Sierra Leone and to provide some girls scholarships. Uh, so HIA has been, and I think one of the reasons HIA has been the backbone to what we do is uh, many of you who work with small NGOs realize that uh, funding has now become a way for people who have no idea what is happening in some of the places that you're trying to work, defining what you should do. So I'm pretty sure you can attest to the fact that you spend some of your time trying to make things fit into grant descriptions instead of coming to donors and saying, hey, here's the problem and this is what we could do. Uh, and I think for me, one of my comfort with HI is the fact that I can talk to HI and say, yeah, these are your criteria, but um, here is where this idea we're coming from divert a little bit, and I have found that HI is, is usually very comfortable with, you know, tweaking some of the ideal situation to fit um, the, the, the issues we're trying to deal with. And, and so that support has been very, very important for what we do. The memory project will not be happening if it wasn't for that initial grant, uh, Dutch grant that HIA sponsored. So uh, the senior fellows and everyone in this organization has been very useful to what we do. And this is what we can all tap into in the experiences of each other, even if it's just 
a place to crash when I go out doing fundraisers in obscure <laughs> towns around America where other senior fellows might be living. <laughs> so, uh, we are really each other's network, and for me, this is very important. Brian, you're the networking Before expert. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, it's interesting because I think networking kind of has like a negative connotation for some reason. And um, I think it's often because we think of it as though it's like you're trying to be advance yourself and you're trying to sort of get access to someone who's already ahead of you or above you in some way or something like that. And I think we, we need to, and that's part of the reason I think we need to kind of turn it on its head in that most of the time that we spend, whether we call it networking or whatever, I would say most of the time that we spend building community with other people who share your values um, should, should be spent with people who are your peers, who are, who are part of your cohort, people who are in this room, um, and also people who are trying to get to where you are. I think that, that sort of thinking of networking uh, by being around people who you can share something with, who are maybe trying to get somewhere similar to where you are, because that will make them that much more likely to want to share with you how they got to where they are in a different way. And so that, that sort of sharing process um, is much more natural when you, when, you, when you think about it as building community with people who are your peers, who are your cohort, and also people who you can share with who are, who are coming up, and maybe you can teach something based on what you've learned. So with HIA, um, I, I, I'm guilty of this because I haven't had the opportunity to, to connect um, with many of the folks who've done HIA after me, and, I, and, I, and, I, and that's something that um, I, I think that as senior fellows, we should be doing more of. So for those of us who are the old, oh, the old ones here, the pre-Twitter people, um, we, 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 you know, uh, hit us up. Like, networking for me is being here for those of you who've done HIA a year or two ago so I can learn from you and your experiences and so I can share with you what I've done and hopefully you can share with me too. So that, that's, I think, the, most, uh, the best way to use this network. Yeah, yeah, we just just real quickly. It's a new world, right? And I think the problems are so big and so vast that you can't solve them on your own or with one little sort of angle. Like the U.S. government used to be able to solve problems unilaterally, and it can't anymore. And there's a lot of people out there, a lot of very smart people who invest a lot of time in very dumb things, like you know, just creating wealth for the sake of wealth and cycling around electronically and moving it back. Um, this group is doing really cool things in a lot of different cool places, and so we need to, you know, draw sustenance from each other in terms of, you know, fighting the good fight, wherever that fight may be. And it's almost less relevant, exactly what you're doing, and the fact that you're doing something, I think, is huge. Just two very practical points. I think, number one, um, always say, how are you? And then listen to the answer when you talk to someone. And I think I catch myself when I'm really busy. I'm like, hey, can I get a conference room for 2 o'clock? And, and like, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Hi, you know, how are you? And even those extra 10 seconds it just makes a big difference because we're human beings interacting with other human beings, and that's important to remember. Uh, and then number two under that, I, I think the best connections I have to people are, you know, to state the obvious, personal rather than professional. So even if you start a link with someone, I remember Michael Johnson, the prosecutor, came and spoke at HIA, and his professional career was fantastic. But what really stuck with me was, I was like, wow, you, you spent six months in Bosnia, um, you know, what about your wife and your kids? Like, I want to I want to spend time with my wife. I want to have a family, and I want to do all this stuff. How did you do it? Um, and that's, I think, where a real connection is made. So when I emailed him, like, three years later, he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that conversation in a way that you might not have if you just be like, hi, I'm a lawyer, you're a lawyer, you know, lots of you lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> that, we're going to open it up to the audience. So raise your hand. I believe someone will be coming around with a microphone. Excellent. 
You don't have to ask questions. You can tell us your thoughts, too. Yeah. They've answered all your well, questions. Or we can do it over drinks yeah, later. Thank you. Yeah. It's the best type of networking, I think. It's it? true, actually. It's off the record, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. So it's um it's one of the biggest school districts in California. Um, there are fifty six thousand uh, students in in the school district. Uh, it's a it was a citywide race. Uh, it's high. You know, San Francisco is sort of known to be crazy, and it is. Um, our politics are pretty zany in different ways. We're um, we're like super far left to like super 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 far left. So I fit right in. Um, you know, I was said earlier in our group. I'm like, they're like, do you ever feel like you have to compromise your values and politics there? And I'm like, no, everyone's communist. We're good. Um, and um, <laughs> so. You know, varying degrees of, of communism. Um, so, uh, but we still have a school system that has tremendous problems, you know, and, and I think it's, it's that much a big, a, a big of a deal to have San Francisco, this progressive place that's known throughout the world for having these values of compassion and community and craziness and everything, whatever, um, where our schools still, you know, have a long way to go. Um, they're not serving every kid. They're especially not serving um, low-income African-American Latino kids. So um, that was what drew me to do it. Um, and and I, like I said, I had sort of a different profile than min- most of the other people who were on the board or were running. It was very competitive. There were 15 people who ran for four spots and three incumbents were running. So I was sort of, you know, there was one open spot, um, which I got. <laughs> um, so the other three people who won were, were incumbents. Um, and I raised the most money, so that was a big part of it, um, which is unusual for a young person, and happy to share that with people who are interested in, in running for office of how to do that. But really what allowed me to do it is that I had built this huge network of peers, of people who I had either mentored or I had came up together with, and, and we were underestimated. Um, a lot of it had to do with the Obama campaign and the community that came together around that. Uh, but the power of a network and of a community um, to overcome traditional political machines and barriers. I think the, the election that I was a part of um, showed that and demonstrated that. Um, so that, that, that was how I did it. We knocked on a lot of doors. We talked to a lot of people. But it was having hundreds of people who were my peers and uh, who, who came out and had my back and not saying, well, I know this, you know, assembly member, I know this congressperson, and, oh, because I kn- know them, they're going to help me and get me elected. Um, if that worked, um, um, that wouldn't be the right way to do it anyways, and I'd be, have a lot less um, power and a lot less ability to do the sort of things that I want to do now if I had done it that way. But I think, you know, thinking about first and foremost building a community, um, those people, if they believe in you, if they worked with you and seen your values in action in other spaces, they're going to come out and have your back, and that's, that's how I think you should run for office if, for those of you who are thinking of it. Thank you for oh, thank you so much for this panel. Um, I had a question about the the workplace and competition. So obviously, a lot of us in this room we're we're doing things because we care and we're interested in human rights. But I go to school in Washington D.C. and it's extremely competitive, and everyone's out there because they they have a mission. They really want to do good work. So if you could talk a little bit about networking, 
being kind while networking and being competitive, that would be great. Thank you. Let me just say something quick. So I think um, I think there's politics in every organization, bureaucratic or otherwise, large or small, and you just have to recognize that and, and be okay with that to a certain extent and that people always have their own personal motivations and personal ambitions. Um, but I guess I would say what's encouraging to me after spending now six years in D.C., um, you can only be an asshole for so far, right? <laughs> and you don't want to be that person. So, you know, it, it benefits at certain points to sort of, you know, bulldoze someone in a meeting or kind of be jerky or kind of backstab. But at the end of the day, um, the network that you're talking, that Matt's talking about, that you want there getting your back is going to be there not because, you know, you made a sweet point at a meeting, but because you covered for a, a coworker when they're on you know, maternity leave or because you, you know, asked about their parent when you heard that someone was sick or you, know, you helped them out on something. So I, I think you know, just the lesson that, that Sonia learned at 13, to her credit, is being kind actually goes a really long ways, and people remember you for it. Um, so I, I don't think it's you – know, and, and you have to find a place that rewards or matches your personality. Like if you find yourself constantly working against or swimming upstream – maybe it's better to find something that's a bit more, you know, fitting for you. So if you're always like, if it's a culture that is fundamentally antagonistic, there are other places that aren't like that. I think I would, I would agree completely. And I would say, um, you know, especially when you look at, let's say, the UN or, or um, some of these jobs, which are very extremely competitive. I mean, we all have probably 90% of the people in this room have a master's degree in international blank you know i mean we all it's and they're all they're all you know so when you're you know i've done some i've been on like the interview panels or you have to hire a position in the un and you you know how can you possibly differentiate between 1000 identical cvs right and everyone did an internship and you know here and did this and did that and and so i think Great point is yes, being being just being nice and, and reaching out. I'm a horrible networker myself, but I think another thing that really helps you to differentiate you from those thousand, besides having a someone on the inside, a friend who's going to put your CV on the top of that pile, um, is to just you know, like you said, be be true to yourself. I mean, there are we are all so similar on paper that you have to distinguish yourself. In something, and it should, I mean, the best way to do that is to pick something that, that's true to you, that's inside of you. So uh, me, for example, uh, I was extremely just very passionate about about languages and, and interacting with people, you know, in foreign languages. So I picked a language that I knew, you know, very few people spoke well. And so I was able to, you know, when you're – to put that on my resume – where I could be exactly identical to everyone else, but just having that one thing. And it was something that I was passionate about, that I loved doing, that I really dug deep in. And when I spoke about it, you know, you could tell that I was passionate about it. And I think that's what, that's what got me in the door. Um, after that, you know, it doesn't matter so much. You're inside and you can, you can move from there and you can, but as, uh, so I think if you can find something very, special that you're passionate about that you can that will motivate you as well i think it's going to help you a lot in this competitive environment i would also emphasize um being cognizant of how success is judged in whichever work environment you're pursuing um prior to working in my current office um i worked in 
affordable housing development um, at the New York City Housing Authority. And while it was very important work, um, there were many folks who judged their worth by how many affordable units were built. Um, and, and that can be, you know, that's too narrow a frame um, for, for that sort of work. Um, whereas I think um, in many positions, in many of these sorts of roles, um, building relationships, not only within your organization, but with partner organizations um, and with those you serve, um, I think will be, that will determine how successful you are. Um, so I think being, for me, that that's a, a work environment that's more conducive to, to what it is I want to accomplish. Um, and for that reason, I, you know, I, I don't feel it's as competitive because it's a work environment that's more conducive to, to what I like to do and what I think I do well. Apologies, we're going to move on to the next question, Etienne. I guess for everyone, but particularly for those who are working in international development, are there moments when uh, pragmatism limits you from living out the values of uh, hu uh, humanity in action? Uh, and here I'm thinking about the trade-offs between development and human rights. Thank you. Um, Definitely. But I, I, I gave up on that one a couple of years ago. <laughs> it's on y'all now. Yeah. I'll let uh, Mr. Bulby do the, the positive answer. That Yes, I mean, definitely. And I think, you know, there's reality that, that politics is just as true um, on a macro, macro or national scale as it is in a small organization. Um, and I think it's, you know, for me, what's been kind of a, a learning curve in USAID has been dealing with that reality. I mean, we have a lot of people who came in through Peace Corps, like hardcore, you know, Aggies or whatever. Um, and at a certain point, they're not very effective because they're saying, you know, what we should be doing in West Bank is a nutrition program that focuses on, you know, small sea development. And you're like, there's a negotiation process, a peace process taking place with a country that's right on the border of, of the West Bank. It's called Israel. Israel is a huge policy priority for the U.S. government. If you don't understand that, your ability to work in that space is essentially non-existent. So I think for me it's saying, okay, um, yes, we didn't call Egypt a coup. Why might that be? Um, what is the outcome we actually want to achieve? And then what's the best way to get there? And I think if you sort of let yourself get a little bit too blinkered in, you know, what is right, what is right doesn't necessarily get you to the outcome that you want. I think um, <clears throat> practically as well, especially in a place like, let's say, for in Lebanon, for example, where I worked uh, – it's a country which is, you know, has a delicate sectarian balance. The, the entire political system is based on this um, agreement, this compromise of sorts of so much power in the Sunnis and the Shias and the, and the Maronites, and it's very complex. And then you have the United States, which has a very, um, very strong line as opposed to Hezbollah, for example, that they don't – they're a terrorist group, and, you know, they don't want to deal with them. However, it's also the elected government of the country currently. So how do you reconcile? You know, um, we, had, uh, we had to bring – our U.S. was the largest donor for, for UNRWA, for the Palestinian um, Refugee Agency. And I had to bring U.S. embassy officials to meet with the Palestinian community in this camp to hear their concerns and views and get things done. And the committee that they're meeting is made up of all the political parties. So you've, one of those parties is called Islamic Jihad, <laughs> Okay. I mean, it's, it's a flashy name maybe, and we think, but it's a legitimate political constituency in this refugee camp, and they represent a large, sizable portion of the population. And this guy is a mover and a shaker, and he's got to be in that meeting. So how do, you, how do I do that? You know, so um, 
you know, you, I'm not going to go into the details, but essentially you, you tell Mohammed to tone it down a little bit in the meeting and you don't tell the Americans that he's from the Islamic Jihad. <laughs> and the meeting goes on fine and they ask their questions and he feels like he's participating and, and we get things done, right? But if you felt like you had to follow, out of principle, I must, I must tell them, you know, who this guy is and, um, you know, Sometimes you have to make these choices, and no one, no one was harmed in the process, right? <laughs> Great. Um, thank you all so much for talking to us. I think this is the last question, I, I think. Um, <laughs> so Matt Haney wrote up a great point when he was talking about his transition from, you know, working in the international sphere to the domestic sphere, and he was sort of inspired to work on the same issue, but to do it closer to home. And that's something that I've grappled with, and I'm sure many others in the room have grappled with that. And, and I just want to start, you know, maybe you guys can draw from your own personal experiences, but what are the questions that you use to frame that decision and that choice? Do I work in the international sphere on X issue I'm passionate about, or do I work in my own backyard? Thanks. I'll just add quickly since, uh, uh, to it, and then the others can... Um, <laughs> Because um, this is something I've thought a lot about. Um, you know, two additional things with it. Um, one thing that was imp was important that I grappled with is what's my personal stake in these issues? Do I have to live with whatever it is that I do? Uh, if you're in, in another country and and you think that it's possible or likely that you're going to leave in a couple months, um, at least for me, I think I had a hard time. Um, grappling with the question of what it meant for me to be making decisions for other people that I didn't have to live with, particularly when you talk about transitional justice and that sort of thing. Those are very complicated. You know, do you put someone in prison or do you do something that's sort of more of a restorative approach to it? Um, if I didn't have to live with the consequences of, of that decision um, personally in that space and I could walk away from it and, and find distance from it, I wasn't as comfortable doing it. And, and in San Francisco with our schools, uh, I have to live with that. I, I want to have kids and, and, and raise them in San Francisco. I went through public schools myself. Uh, so I, I could be walking down the street one day and a kid that we pushed, suspended and expelled from school, you know, decides to rob me or whatever, whatever it is. I have to live with that. That's my community. Um, or, you know, a kid that, that because we changed the schools, um, you know, goes on and creates something that cures some, you know, uh, disease that one day I have, you know, and then he, and because of, you know, it's, it's that. And I think that there's something about that, the, the way that, you know, the world works that um, us, uh, each of us having a, a deep investment in the, the issues and the, and the decisions um, that, that we're a part of, at least in a big way, I think is, is important. And there's obviously an argument that we're we're a global, you know, things become more global. We do have an investment. I do have a personal stake in what happens in Bosnia, just in a different way. Uh, but for me, it was important to have that really direct connection that I had to live with whatever it was that I was doing. And, 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 I, and if I was going to be a part of something in a powerful way, uh, I wanted to make sure that I understood that my, I understood directly my personal stake in it. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this up, but a big thanks to the panel. Sorry, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I and let's continue the conversation at dinner.